Welcome to a new episode of Crew and Cast Pod with Adrian Taus. I'm Adrian Taus. My guest today is writer and director Cole Spector. Cole's filmography includes films such as Someone Else, Honeymooner, and Things He Never Said. We talked about his love of making romantic comedies, the art of casting, directing actors, the struggle and importance of writing, and finally box sets versus movies. I really enjoyed the conversation with Cole, and after having had two actors on, I thought it'd be refreshing to get a filmmaker's point of view. Enjoy. <laughs> uh, but do you have you meditated? I've tried. I find it very hard. But I think T- I don't give it enough time. But the thing about TM is, it's anyone can do it. It's 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 the most brilliant practice. Jerry Seinfeld. What's Jerry Seinfeld on TM? Oh, really? There's a video Jerry Seinfeld talking about. It's lovely. Well, there's a few different talks, but one is like really good. Okay. And when I was making my last film, it was so 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 stressful. And there's one scene it just didn't work. And um, I just kind of had that reserve of TM in me, and it just it kind of managed to solve itself. What's what's TM actually stand for? Stands for transcendental meditation. Transcendental. Transcendental. Oh, transcendental. Transcendental would suggest something to do with teeth. <laughs> transcendental meditation. All I know is it works. It's effective. And the other amazing. I mean, what got me on onto it was I went out with this girl when I was about. 19 and I met her mum and her mum's boyfriend and her mum's boyfriend and her had a certain they just had this quality I really liked uh-huh. um, and that was it and I, he also told me a story about how he went for a medical at work and um, they, they, they test his hearing and he's meant to bring his finger down uh-huh. when the buzzing stops right so they're doing it and his finger stays and they go Rod you, you we've, we've turned it off we're turning you shouldn't hear it so no, I can still hear it. Well, you can't because obviously I can still hear it. And what you could hear was the air conditioning two blocks away. Really? And I love the fact that he had superpowers. Wow. <laughs> I really like that. Acting for film truth 24 times a second. Yes, I love that book a lot um, because it's it's very pragmatic. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, like if I, I, I sort of have a problem with um, uh, acting techniques that, that, that read like almost it's like a religious text. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does, yeah. yeah. The only thing is the mixture. So I, I love method acting. I just mm-hmm. really, really think it's an extraordinary um, style of acting. It the is, Americans yeah. do it so well. And I've, I've asked actors I've worked with to do it, and they said, no, I don't need to. Uh, and this was for a scene of um, fear. Right. They said, no, don't worry, I can, I can act it. Um, and I said, sure, I'd rather you did methods. And, but what the result was, it wasn't very believable. But I just really admire those um, those American actors, particularly American actors who yeah. use method. As you say, often though, someone not thinking about anything and just turning their face off is also emotional. That's the thing, isn't it, about screen acting? It's everything. It's, the whole, mm. it's whatever works. It always annoys me when I see um, actors on screen, especially doing there's certain moves they do with their face or certain reactions or whatever. And I think I've seen this a thousand times mm. before. Um, and we just accept it because we see it all the time, but it's not actually genuine. It's just one of those things actors do to emote or to, to kind of project an emotion. And I, every time I, I don't see that and I see something that I've never seen before and it's very specific to that person, that is suddenly something completely engaging. Yeah. Yes, I suppose the worst thing is trying to act, isn't it? 
Well, to yeah. act. Acting is the worst thing. Well, yeah, acting is terrible. I don't know why anyone does it. <laughs> no, but to actually act. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly, yeah. It's easy for me to say as a director, I just hate it. That's, that's my little thing I can't stand, is when you're watching someone and you're just aware of them acting. Yeah. Because I just love it when someone's natural and real. Yeah. And it does seem to me the world's divided in terms of actors who can be natural. Yeah. And actors, you're just aware of the, the fakeness. Yeah. So do you think, it, it, do you think it's an even divide? Or do no, you think, no, I think, I, I think there's lots of really hammy actors, <laughs> not so many natural, but I just, yeah. I just love that naturalism. I just really like that. Yeah. Again, the Americans do it so well. Why do you think that is? Is there a different school of acting? I think one of the things is American accent is a very kind of democratic accent. Mm-hmm. Also, I don't know. I, I'm just guessing maybe it's a theatre tradition we've got here. Mm-hmm. Whereas lots more Americans are brought up in um, in acting, so it's more natural. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because character acting is bigger in America, and character acting often means less acting because you're playing. You know, you're being more um, yourself. I don't know. Mm. Not quite sure what it is. What do you th- or do you do you, do you agree with that? Do you think that I think you've got a point. I think yeah, I think that the theatre tradition definitely has an impact because it's a very different style of acting, which doesn't necessarily always um, translate to screen very well. I think for period dramas, I think it works because we just accept that heightened reality because it's it's in the past. We have no frame of reference. We don't, you know, we just accept that that's kind of a different way people talked and acted. And but I think in in, in contemporary stories, I yeah, I I think realism is well. I think realism is is not always appropriate. I think I think it has to be to like certain like in comedy. I think sometimes it has to be heightened. To a degree, and I'm not talking about overacting or 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 anything like that. But there's certain things you wouldn't do or say in reality that we sometimes yeah, have to. I, in, yeah, um, I know you mean, but I wouldn't necessarily say I'm, I, I like realism, but I just like naturalism. So even right. if something's a bit heightened, what's what, should, what's the difference between naturalism and realism? Um, I suppose I suppose I, I don't know what realism means because, as you say, it could be a slight heightened version of someone. Yeah, but it shouldn't feel unnatural, mm. and um, and that's I don't know, within the, within the logic of that world. It should yeah. feel natural. Yeah, you know, you know, when you go and see films, we see plays, and just something feels um, just fake. Yeah, that's just the thing I dislike, and there seems to be quite a lot of it around. So, how do you how do you approach casting when you cast few films? Um, the the most important thing is I just look for that thrill factor. Yeah. Just say that I go. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! I can't believe this person. Oh my god! Is he, they want to do the film. Right. I just want to be so excited. I want to be so so excited by every cast member. Right. And almost want to jump up in the air with joy. That's what I'm looking for. Right. And I just want an absolute naturalism as well. But yeah. That, but that's tied up with being excited. Oh, that's what it's interesting. That's it's almost like maybe it's almost like dating. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same as dating, yeah. I think. Because you can go on a date with someone and think, well, they're, you know, they're nice, they're competent, they're, it's 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 all good. But if you don't get get that excitement and that thrill, yeah, um, yeah, why would you settle on on that? But then sometimes, I mean, did you ever get to a point in casting where you you got frustrated and you didn't find you didn't get that excitement? Yeah, I, did. I remember my very first short film, which I made in two thousand and one. Um, I tried to make it the year before, so I went looking for a cast for that, and I just couldn't find the right cast, so I didn't right. make the film. Right. So oh, it was sweet. only okay. when I tried a year later that 
I found the right cast. So, so how far into production were you at that point to I abandon was just, the... I wasn't even... I was just looking for the cast ready once I found the cast somehow made the film. Right, okay. So, right. Um, so I have to... For me, I think 90% of directing, assuming the script's there, 90% of directing is casting. Mm-hmm. 90% of what's really, really important about directing is casting. Mm-hmm. Because if you haven't got the right cast, all the 16 mil and yeah. all the fancy lighting and all this, it's, it's, yeah. it doesn't mean anything. Absolutely agree. And I think that's what a lot of film school students get wrong. I think I, yeah. I totally agree. And film mm. schools as well get wrong because they entice students to spend money on the courses uh, with the idea you can fly to New York to do this acting mm-hmm. class and see that acting type and all this. But they don't work enough on the scripts. Right. The script is the most important thing. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's the name of the game. It's all about the script. And it's, and it's also the least expensive thing and to it's actually do. It's the least do. expensive thing to do, exactly. Yeah. But, but the thing about casting is that's not so hard if you've got, I mean, I just think casting directors are worth their weight in gold. I love, mm. love, love casting directors. I've just got such admiration and awe for the art of the casting director. Mm. But I suppose at film school, you may not have the, the money, but yeah. you need to have the time to look for the right cast. Yeah. But if you've got the money to hire a fancy camera, uh, and a, tr- a truck full of lights, then it might be wet, better spent actually getting the cast right. I totally and then f- agree. Totally you can f- agree. I think you can film a short film on an iPhone these days yeah. with an amazing cast and well-directed and good sound. I wouldn't cheap out on yeah. sound. And it'll be a better film. Uh, yeah. And there's so many, in the last like 10 years, that mumblecore movement in uh, you know Andrew Bajelski and Lynn mm-hmm. Shelton, they just showed how it doesn't matter if it looks nice or not. Just mm-hmm. a great cast, simple cast, and some great actors, and they don't even have to be professional actors. Mm. Sometimes they're the directors themselves end up being amazing actors. Mm. That kind of was a great kind of shaking up the indie scene, I thought. So how do you when when you approach it or we get a casting director, how much do you what kind of information do you give them about each part? Are you very specific or do you keep it very open? I like to be specific because I just think I I don't I tend to have much money, so I don't want to waste their time. Right. Um, so I'll give them a brief, but I find like leading guys for, cause my two last films have been, you know, love from a guy's point of view to find a sympathetic leading guy mm-hmm. who's masculine, but got a kind of feminine side, who's vulnerable, but he's, you know, got the strength and there's a sweetness, but not to, you know, mm-hmm. just getting all those things and the ability for them to laugh at themselves and for us to actually like them. Yeah. That's really hard to find. Yeah, a guy who the audience is willing to pay fifteen pounds to watch. Yeah, who is funny? Who you know? Who's able to laugh at themselves? I think that's important. Mm-hmm. But also feels real. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's quite a few box to tick, and I don't. Know, it's it seems to be rare. Uh-huh. That's why when I worked with Steve Mangan on my first film, I think he's got that very very special. Mm. Uh, all those things I was after, he's got. Yeah. I think Chris O'Dowd's got that as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think Joe Gilgan, Joseph Gilgan's got mm-hmm. that. So I think there are a few, you know, phenomenal actors here. Yeah, but I don't think there's like a, a great wealth of, of of choice. Right. Well, it used to be just Hugh Grant for like two <laughs> decades. Yeah. Is there a theme to the the films you make? I think that the only theme is a disjoint between what men. Uh, think they want and what they really want. And I think, I think there's something about, um, trying to just tell things how they are in real life rather than in movies. 
Why do you think, why is that so interesting to you? Because it, because um, I find it amusing. I just think it's, it's me just trying to find my own voice as a writer. And it seems right. to be that same theme. And I suppose I realize I end up a lot of times writing about guys, guys in terms of guys and women. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be um, an entertaining, I don't know if it's a theme, but just something that keeps emerging because I want to make smart comedies and mm-hmm. that, that idea is something just it seems to inform the script. I don't start out with that in mind, but <laughs> it ends up being that sort of story, I think. Right. When, when you're editing, you, do you edit yourself or do you have an no, editor? I work with an editor, but I, right. I, I, I sit in throughout the editing. Throughout the whole process. Just so like selecting takes? Uh, so including selecting takes. Yeah. I love, love the editor to also make some selects, but I want to just cut the first, make a first cut quite quickly. Mm-hmm. And see how it relates to what I have in my mind. Mm-hmm. And then obviously I want to see if an editor can add more to that. Mm. Um, but that's how I've worked in the past. I'd love to actually hand it over to an editor. Completely. To do a first cut. Yeah. But I just in the past, that's how it's right. worked. Right. But that's quite a risk though. I mean, you really have to trust an it's editor. It's not much of a risk because you can always go back to the rushes and then. Of course. Yeah. Of course. I think, I think once the film's in the can, there's, there's not many risks because you, you've got yeah, that's, options. Yeah. That's true. But I think if you're selecting takes, there's, I don't know how many takes you usually do on average, but I think if you, if you let someone else to make a a selection, there's obviously an objectivity that's there, which is valuable. But then if you, if you, the only reason you would go back if, if you, if you don't like it, but then if, if a take was selected that is usable and it's great and you don't necessarily see the takes that might have been. Oh, no, I want to see all the takes. You want to see all the takes. Right. Okay. My own little notes. Right. Right. No, definitely, because I just I just want to know for sure if it's mm-hmm. something I'm not quite sure. Right. I want to know if there's another one. Right. Yes, I'll I'll know my rushes pretty well. well right. I think I'll know my rushes. Pretty well. <laughs> How many takes you, would you say you do on average? Are you someone um, who does a lot of takes? The only time I've done lots and lots of takes is when someone in the scene isn't doing a great job. I did a, I did um one shot scene in in the last film Honeymooner, and there was someone who'd never acted before. Mm-hmm. And, um, I had to do 30 takes of this one. It was just, it was just, it was just ag- agony. And, um, I knew I shouldn't have cast that person in the first place. <laughs> and that was just horrible. And it's just so stupid and counterproductive. And mm-hmm. um, also when you make such a low budget film to do 30 takes, it's just, it's just awful. So well, there comes a point where you think, is, is it work? Am I going to get it after? Take twenty. Do you do you think to yourself is yeah? I, I suppose that <clears throat> what's going to change. I, I think that what I should really have done is is after two or three takes recast, just take right. a risk with someone who's someone who's around an right. extra or something. Right, that's what I should have done. Right, be live and learn. <laughs> <laughs> but normally, I, I don't like to do more than two takes, three takes, two three. Right. Yeah, if you got yeah. great. D- depends because I don't think you gain much after about three takes. Mm. Unless you do something completely different. Unless, I suppose, on the fourth take, just let actors do their own thing. Yeah. Yeah, generally, I don't think it improves after three takes. Do you rehearse much? I'd like to, if I've got the time. If Well, if, if the actors give me the time, I'd love to yeah. rehearse, definitely, because right. I want to see if the script works. Right. Because there's one thing, writing a script, and the other is getting actors to say it. And mm. hope it's going to feel real. A lot of times it doesn't. It feels written. Right. So I love rehearsals to hear actors say it and then I'll be tough on the scripts and just mm-hmm. get them to say it in their own words or mm-hmm. or else rewrite little bits and bobs. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, rehearsals is just very, uh, yeah, very sacred. Mm -hmm. And again, when I, the last film was made so cheap, I didn't have very long to rehearse. Mm -hmm. It would have been so nice to spend a little bit more time. Mm -hmm. Do you, how do you approach, like, if, let's say you, you don't really have any time or much time to rehearse with the actors before you start shooting on the day, you know, you, you, you block a scene. How do you, how do you start working with the cast? Tend to, I'm not saying this is the right way. In the past, I've tended to, block the scene I've got an idea how I want to have it covered mm -hmm. but in the future I would like to see the actors perform it on set mm -hmm. and I'd like to then work the DP on finding a way to shoot it maybe with some ideas about blocking ourselves mm -hmm. but I'd like to have more flexibility because mm -hmm. I think this controlling the director controlling the film before the actors go on set I don't think it makes the best cinema mm -hmm. I think often it creates the worst cinema mm -hmm. so I, I'd like to have my own thoughts but then I'd like to bring the actors in mm -hmm. Again, keep their performance back so yeah. they're, not, they're not performing, but see what they offer. Yeah. Set because the location makes such a difference and the way people play it makes Absolutely. such a difference. But um, also that creates a, the risk of it, obviously, uh, being more expensive because you'd have to, that it takes longer to yeah. block a scene to set it up and you it might, does. you know, have to light it in a way that wasn't planned or suddenly there's problems. So it creates... Yeah. It might take longer to actually shoot a scene that way. But. It could take longer. However, theoretically, I mean, I, I love Gordon Willis and there's a great commentary and I watch all the videos on YouTube of him. You know, what he does, he gets the actors in, looks at the scene, and then he will always try and find what's the simplest way of covering it. Do we really right. need three shots? Right. What about if we just do it in one shot? Mm -hmm. So I do think there is an argument for the Gordon Willis style, which mm -hmm. might save money. Mm -hmm. It does take a bit of time at the beginning, but hopefully you'll save that time later. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I completely agree. If the performance is engaging enough, there's no often no real need to to cut about that much, yeah, or to cover that much. Um, I was I was watching this a random example. But I was watching The Birdcage with Robin Williams and, and Nathan Lane. It's it's not a very well known film, but it's it's beautifully it's it's a, it's an adaptation from a French film. But most of it is covered in it's just this beautifully long shots, just a, a one shot for a whole scene with three people in it. And you forget after a while because it's so well blocked. It's amazingly performed. The cast is extraordinary. It's like watching a play. So you just, for like a three-minute scene, you just have the camera just slightly pan or just slightly move in, and that's all it does. And then there's one cut to a reaction shot, and that's it. Um, yeah, there is an argument for for the playing comedy, you know, in a looser shot, mm. like a two-shot because you get the reaction in it. Right. A lot of time, less directing is often more, I think. Right. But you have got to also be careful that it can get tiring and boring because it could feel a bit theatre rather than cinema. So yeah. there's that fine balance. And you have very little control over the pace and editing. That That's why you've got to have a good night's sleep beforehand, be really sharp, because <laughs> to, to you're checking the edit in the actual shoot. Mm. So yes, it's, it's risky, but... I think oftentimes it's just so sophisticated when you pull it off mm. and it's perfect for creating a you know, sophisticated comedy mm. where you're not marking the joke. Right. Because that traditional master shot, you know, over the shoulder, over the shoulder stuff, it's less funny. I remember when mm. I made my first short film, uh, New Year's Eve, I wanted to make a beautiful, very well constructed, you know, gorgeous um, film. That's my first short film. And all I noticed was it was funnier when the camera just held back. Uh -huh. And it's quite a dry, cool, cold film in terms of where it's directed. 
but it is appropriate for the performance. Right. So there is that tension as a director. Sometimes you want to make something, you know, where you show off a bit with, you know, tricks and tracking and lovely, amazing shots, but it doesn't necessarily work for the performance, for the comedy. Mm -hmm. I think all those directing decisions come back to what you want to say as a director, Mm -hmm. what you want to say about the material as a director. When you, when you're casting, does it change your, your opinion of a character when you see something that you might have not expected? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And hopefully um, it's about adjusting your expectations. And when someone who's even better comes mm, along, right. who's even funnier or even more moving, you just have to then quickly change in your mind. And they may not be exactly what I want, but I think actually this makes it work even better. Right. Then you have to potentially change the casting ideas about some of the other characters. Right. So you have to be a bit open. But again, it just comes back for me to that thrill factor is what that person doing or is just their presence thrilling. And am I interested? Right. I'm looking for people who are just interesting. Right. And again, I'm imagining, is, is this almost like I'm watching a film unfold in front of me? Mm-hmm. Because I don't, I don't like directing. I don't like to try and do any manipulating or mm. molding. Mm. I want that person to just encapsulate that character. Um, well, it comes back to you saying 90% of directing is casting. So Absolutely. once you've cast someone the right way, there's no need to really give them that much direction once you're filming it should be totally yeah yeah or maybe a little nudge in yeah yeah of, or maybe do a little bit faster or yeah or don't forget you know why are you saying this to her right you're saying because you want a date or something I yeah know. just occasional little yeah I, I don't i don't do much the only time i direct is when i'm i've miscast someone <laughs> and then i've got to somehow try and get a performance <laughs> which is incredible <laughs> the time, how do you do that how do you through gritted teeth and try not try to look relaxed and, and not stressed, um, and uh, just have to be creative. Yeah, like maybe I don't know, get someone to push them so they actually are angry, right? Or do something just to shake them up. Yeah, because often it's not an intellectual thing; it has to be something physical or put fear into them, or uh-huh. or get someone in the scene to do something different. Yeah, or get someone to put move in their way so they are thrown off balance. Right, in some ways. Right. Try and create just something so their brain is turned off for a moment. Right. Do you ever seek the help of someone else in the cast? Or give like uh, a separate you, direction to influence yeah, might, someone might else's that, performance? Yeah. A lot of times if it's the script, it, it, the script's working, you just want them to be natural. Yeah. But, uh, but um, yeah, it, it makes life very difficult when you do a whole scene in one shot. Mm. Makes it so hard. It's mm. so dangerous. <laughs> so dangerous. Such a dangerous thing to do. But I'll learn next time to just be really sure about my cast. And when yeah. you bring in non-professionals, sometimes non-professionals can be so great because they encapsulate that person. Right. However, when they're on set and they see the cameras and all the people, they can freeze. Mm. So even though non-professionals sometimes can be amazing, mm. other times they can just be your downfall. Mm. Well, yeah, because if you're not if you're not used to that kind of way of working and then suddenly you're on set and the lights are on and there's that kind of pressure, you know, you know, blah, 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 action. And then there's a, there's, there's a tenseness and then do it again and doing it again and doing yeah. it again. I think that's something where I think you kind of, there's some craft involved to be able to sustain whatever you can naturally Definitely. do to, you know, that's the thing it. the non-professional often doesn't have is that craft and that, mm. um, I mean, it's, I mean, they're very, very different non-professional, mm. professional actor. Mm. But a professional actor you know is going to turn up on time mm-hmm. and you know is going to remember the continuity. And mm-hmm. So if you work with a non-professional, you have to shoot in a different way to accommodate right. that. Right. A different way of working. 
So do you, do you, do you do that often? Do you cast non-professionals often? Is that something just, you just like to have in the mix? I just like to have in the mix sometimes. Yeah. I remember in the last film, there was a shop assistant and every actor, every actress who came in for, for any part, I'd just get them to play the little shop assistant role. Uh-huh. And I just never found someone who just felt real. Right. And they had to look really shocked and put out by what this fellow was, was saying. Uh-huh. And in the end, I asked my associate producer to look in a supermarket, just go, just hunt for people in supermarkets. Uh-huh. And I found some girl, Cuban girl in a supermarket. And she was just right because <laughs> she wasn't professional. Right. She didn't act. Right. She just looked put right. out. She had that put out quality. <laughs> um, so some parts in my films, someone who's close to that character is better than an actor. Right. But then I have to like roll up my sleeves and think, oh my God, this could be tough. Right. This could be, this could be a, a hard day. Cause I think that's that, I think that might be a general problem with little bit parts. Um, cause they're like, I remember I go, went in for loads of auditions for like little tiny parts. We have one line and they're almost harder because there's no real, well, you have to kind of create a character, but there's not much you can do with it. It has to just be realistic and not real, like it shouldn't distract. From obviously the main thing that's going on. And I think that that must be a hard thing to cast because if you get loads of actors in to say one line, they'll try and do everything they can with that one line. And then often I think it might be too much mm. and just distracting or slightly a bit too over the top because there's only so much you can do with one line. It's almost supposed to be something that just happens. Um, do you, do you see that problem when you, when you cast people for like a little bit part? Yeah. If it, if it's an actor, that's why again, some mm. of those little parts of better non-professionals because you mm. ideally find someone who is that character more or less. Right, right. But then as I say, you've got those other problems. Mm-hmm. Yes, a small part, a professional actor who's got a small part could be, could be tricky. Yeah, yeah. You, you're producing, or you're about to produce something at the moment. Can I'm you tell looking us about for that? money for, looking for a producer. I thought I had a producer, but I haven't got a producer now uh, for a New York set film. Right. What makes you want to shoot in New York? Um, it's partly just more choice of actors. And also I just want to do something which has got a broad repeal. Um, because I think an American film will have a broad repeal. Also, I just love American. I love New York movies. I've mm-hmm. always wanted to make one. I thought, okay, I'll make it now. This will be a good opportunity to make it. Shooting in New York must be, that must be a whole different ball game. It's, much, it's hard to shoot in New York, isn't it? That's well, the, the, the filmmakers that I've met who've shot in New York say wherever you point a camera, it's just incredible because it's just magical cinema. Of course, you yeah. Are. So in, arguably, I think it's easier. It, the only thing is, I think it's more expensive to shoot in New York. Mm. Locations are very canny to film crews. Mm. So um, producers I've spoken to have just been talking about budgets, in effect, being double what they are in, if you're making a low-budget film in London. Wow. Yeah, but then, yeah, as you said, everywhere you point the camera, it'll have that. And it all, yeah. already, there's so much context there already. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those kind of, I mean, my films are kind of walkie, walkie-talkie relationship <laughs> comedies. Uh-huh. New York is the home of walkie-talkie relationship comedies. So I think it's easier. I think the whole mm. thing should be easier. Mm. It's just interesting for me to bring that kind of European sensibility, that kind of very dry European quality of humour to yeah. New York. So I again, think that I'm, translates quite well, doesn't it? That's, that's what I've been told by, um, Distributors and some producers out there. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, how, tell me about how you started uh, as a filmmaker. Um, I went to art school for a year, did sort of fine art filmmaking, and then went to film school for three years, where you, in groups of seven, very strong-willed people, all being thrown together and asked to direct something. So, seven directors doesn't work. Uh-huh. Um, and um, learned lots of 
philosophy and um, psycho, kind of COD psychoanalysis uh-huh. and COD literary theory. Uh, and so after three years of film school, went straight to unemployment, had to learn how <laughs> to make earn a living making something to do with films. Uh-huh. So I decided I'd make programs for about classical music for the BBC because I didn't think they were very good. Uh-huh. So I thought I had something to say there. So did you just start making those projects? Uh, I developed ideas. I wrote documentary ideas. And right. by chance, I met someone who worked at the BBC and they knew someone who worked in music and arts. So eventually uh, I got to meet them and they liked my ideas. So mm-hmm. I just waited for an opportunity to maybe come where I could get employed. And, and eventually something came. Uh-huh. So I started as a researcher and I was doing bits of directing. And um, and then I was directing music series at the BBC and... Uh, making my own hour-long arts documentaries. So that was that's where I really learned filmmaking at the BBC. Right. When you're making a new thing every couple of weeks, uh-huh. that was my film school. Uh-huh. Um, and and also I had to learn documentary making. So I read books and found you know one or two books that guided me. Mm-hmm. So I had to learn everything outside of film school. Ironically, <laughs> I learned so little about real filmmaking at film school. I think anything. that's just film school, though, isn't it? I, I have the same experience. I had the same experience. Where Where did you go? I went to um, a film school in Germany, which no one's ever heard of, uh, which is called the Lazi Academy of uh, Art and Design, I think. Um, and I used to, uh, after I graduated there, I worked there for two years. And there's loads of it, but I used to answer the phones as well. And they say, Lati Academy, oh, Nazi Academy. No. <laughs> um, interesting that you, that you would think that. Um, so yes, it was like a, an in, a tiny little film school, but we, I mean, I learned a lot because we didn't really have any, we have had some classes and we had equipment that was 20 years old at the time. And this was like 12 years ago. Um, so we just kind of had to make films with whatever we had. So we learned how to make very cheap films and make it well. So we just learned to do the best with very little, which is a problem then if you go into the industry and then you suddenly have to work with equipment you've never seen before because the school couldn't afford the proper equipment. So that was, you know, you had, I had to retrain basically again to, to, to know how to actually make films professionally rather than just, um, you know, with, with an Ari 16 mil and like three lights and a, and a wooden, wooden pair of sticks. <laughs> but I always found it much easier when you had the proper gear or it's, I, 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 I just loved mm. it when that, when that had the bigger resources. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so much easier when you yeah. have everything you need. Um, but oh, I should have muted that, shouldn't I? Um, it's so much easier, but I think it's, it's, uh, when you want, if you can make a, a film with, with the bare essentials, I think it, 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 it teaches you a lot. Yeah, definitely. Cause there was a rivalry film school, um, not that far away from our film school, which we always had a little chip on our shoulder for because they had everything. Yeah. You know, and obviously their films looked amazing because they had all the proper gear. But then I remember work collaborating on a project with students from there and, and the budget wasn't that big. And then suddenly they struggled. They couldn't make it work because they didn't have that specific bit that they needed to mount that light and all of that. So suddenly it all fell apart and they couldn't deal oh. with not oh. having all everything. Oh. Um, so I think there's, there, there's some value in there, but then you, or, yeah, as you said, you learn when you actually in the industry and you learn how to, you know, how things work. And it's not about how to, shoot a scene you can learn that from a book i guess and how to cover things and all of those um you know basic things about filmmaking but when you're actually out there and learning how the industry works and why certain things get picked up by certain things how they have to be produced to work on a specific format and all the politics that go on i think that's something you can't learn at film school and i think when you're when you're making something for a particular audience that 
that helps you know how to make something because mm. not you're not necessarily thinking about an audience, a, a specific audience when you're making something. Right. I suppose you, a film score, maybe you're thinking about a film festival audience. Right. So if you're making something for a broadcaster, you know what the parameters are. And I think those right. often help you, those limitations liberate you a bit. Do you think like that in, in the films you, you're making yourself? Do you, do you think of an audience? Do you have that in mind? Should um, you have that in mind? Yeah, a little bit. I well, the thing is, I'm beginning to find my voice and I know what kind of film it would be and I know what kind of distributor it would be. So right. I know what kind of films they put out. Right. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I think you're kind of thinking about your audience, yeah. Mm. Mm. But I'm not thinking about much. I'm just thinking about, for me, Am I? do I think this is exciting? Do I think this works? Right. So very rarely am I thinking about an audience. I'm just thinking about, is this going to make a good film? Mm-hmm. So when what was the first film you wrote and directed? After the, the first feature was yeah. someone else. Someone else, Stephen Mangan. How did that come about? Because um, quite a big step up from from short films to doing a feature. It's quite a big transition. It is, but I'd always dreamed of making a movie, and mm-hmm. I just because I worked very well with Rada, who was started off my script editor and then collaborated with me on the script. Mm-hmm. I think that was a, a turning point because I found someone who could really help make my writing better mm-hmm. um and um i just had the opportunity I mean, it took a long time to write i just wrote and wrote for a few years mm-hmm. maybe up three years to get the script and in between that i was directing some ads at ridley scott associates mm-hmm. um and in the end i produced the film out of out of rsa films so it was just um i don't know it's just slowly slowly working at the script and then mm-hmm. once it was finished decided to make it. Mm-hmm. How long did you shoot? How long was the... Uh, 18 days. 18 days? Yeah. That's quite a short amount of time. It's a short amount of time, but um, I was talking to um, this um, low-budget movie producer in New York, and she shoots films in 12 days. That's crazy. So she says that's the kind of new 18 days. 12 is the new 18 now. Well, that's what, like eight minutes a day on average? Yeah. yeah. That's crazy. So, so <clears throat> I know someone else who makes improvised mm-hmm. films... Um, this guy, Jamie Adams, he shoots over five days. <laughs> no. So, so, so 18 in, it could be shorter. But yeah, 18 was really hard for your yeah, first film yeah. as well, because you need to, I think I had to kind of reshoot one, one of those days anyway. So it was really hard. Mm. Did that lead straight to another project? I mean, I, I, within about a few months of that film finishing, I was working on another idea. Yeah, mm-hmm. it took another three, three years to write. Right. Like maybe maybe longer, three and a half years to write, something like that. I think that's what a lot of people don't realise as a as a director, the amount of time you spend on a project is is extraordinary. Like from from the especially if you're writing it, from the first initial idea to, you know, finishing the script, producing it, doing it, filming it and releasing it and all of that is is years that you spend on working on one film or as an actor as an actor you go into a few months and then you know onto the next one so it's a big span of time that you dedicate to a project yeah some people i know who writers write really quickly they can write a script in six months three months mm. i think um john favreau wrote swingers over what a week or so wow yeah so so it doesn't have to be but i just found myself i'm just mm. i'm a kind of reluctant writer in the first place mm. and um I started off as a reluctant writer and it takes me a long time to really, really find the characters and find the story and write stuff which is honest and not fake. So how do you, how do you begin writing? Um, What's your process? 
a lot of time it's it's being inspired by a person or a character uh-huh. and that might be inspired by someone in real life um or else it's some kind of dilemma or mm-hmm. i suppose theme mm-hmm. but with my new film it i i started writing a series of short films which i thought was going to be something for um a website and i realized they all had a kind of similar theme and then i reworked some of those into a script mm-hmm. so that was an odd way almost starting with scenes disparate scenes but realizing that there was something they had in common mm-hmm. and then sewing those together as a very very rough backbone to a feature script oh that's interesting so but is there is it there's one central character but, but now that i just have that one central character going through these different situations oh right so that that was just a weird kind of discovery uh-huh. that that's you know, I just find it very hard to write a script. I find yeah. it so hard because it's so easy to write something fake. It's so easy to have characters that people won't care about. Mm-hmm. It's so easy to have characters who are just like characters in a film mm-hmm. rather than something in order what you know what would make someone pay money to watch this film that's that's the hard thing. Mhm. Do you make yourself sit down every day and write? Do you have like a strict regime? Yeah, I'm against that business of, you know, you, that, that some screenwriters say you've got to just write for three hours every day. Yeah. I think you should only write when you really, 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 really want to write. Right. When you can't not write. Yeah. Because that's, that's my own personal thing. Yeah. Maybe it works for other people. No, I agree with that. Um, I think you've got to be so thrilled. Yeah. You like, can't wait, you can't wait, you can't wait. And time just goes like that. But then that's my, that might be the reason why it takes three years. <laughs> I could I go through months where I really don't want to write. I, I see the, the, the benefit of forcing yourself to sit down and write because you always, you always come up with something. But then if, if it's, if it's forced, will it really be any, anything that's of any value? Unless you just go, you know, structure and just do things that you could just mechanically do. So do you, do you get moments where you just, Bash it out for like a couple of hours and then leave it alone again for a few days. Um, like I say, sometimes, you know, work comes along and, and it's frustrating because I have to stop writing, but that's quite good because you get the appetite, you know, you have a burning mm. desire to carry on. But yeah, sometimes I might write myself into a corner and then do something else, do another right. job for a while, and then right. come back and need to have a time apart from it. Mm. And, and also once I finished it, often I feel that it's finished sooner than it really is finished. So it is good to do something else for a couple of months uh-huh. and then come back to it. And then I'll see it afresh. I'm not right. always so critical. Right. I need to have a bit of time or feedback or a crit- criticism to then refresh me. Right. So that's why I think the last bit of that kind of ironing the script can take a long time because I think I'm there. Right. But in fact, I'm not quite there and I've got to actually resolve a few things. Right. I think that's the point when... I give it to other people to see what they think. Uh-huh. And then I have to address some of their crit- criticisms. Mm. And that can take a while. Yeah. That could be another year, I guess. Because it really is good for me to put it away and mm. then not read it for a few months, then come back and read it again. Right, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you, do you structure much before you actually come I, down? Yeah, I'm all and, structure, right? structure, structure. Yeah. Love structure. So you know exactly where every scene fits in, where you're going and... Before you start actually uh, writing down. Oh, not necessarily down before I start, but while I'm writing, I'm yeah. always all. It's all about three act structure. It's yeah. all about what's that thing that happens at the end of the first act to push into the second. Yeah. It's all about that diametric opposition between the end of the second act, and the end of the film. Yeah. 
Um, and then I never leave home without that for my first act, the writer's journey, uh-huh. the ordinary world called to adventure, refuse yeah. to call mentor. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I just find it so liberating having, having that. Yeah. It's like having a, um, a, a writing guru over your shoulder. Uh-huh. Cause I, I love structure because mm-hmm. it liberates me. Cause I remember the first few scripts I wrote. Or tried to write, didn't I? Didn't know any structure, and they just meandered and uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. and it was just so so horrible, such a waste of time. And I just know for me, this structure works. Yeah. Well, I think that's that's where creativity is enhanced if you have um, a specific space to work in. I think if 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 you have too many choices, too many options, that hinders it. I I think so. Yeah. Again, whatever whatever works, but I I think that's right. The yeah. idea of a Sitting there, a blank sheet of paper, um, it's just horrific. It's yeah. too horrible. Yeah. Whereas if you can, almost think like a, a fill one little box at a time, in, in, you know, you can think of it like that yeah. in terms of like the hero's journey, for instance, you know, you have to, you know, there's certain things you just have to do that, that makes it almost easier to come up with, with a little, you know, bit of, something magical within each of those things rather than having to come essentially reinvent the wheel. I, I totally agree. Yeah. I, I think I, I, I hate the idea of reinventing the wheel. And mm. I'd much rather this because it, for me, it works. Yeah. And I'm working when I'm working with my other writer, Rada, mm-hmm. again, we have the same shorthand. Right. So who's the mentor? What's the mentor? Okay. I get it. So what's the end of act two? Yeah. Okay. So act two is about what's it about. Okay. And for, for, for me, you know, that's the basic structure, but the key thing is character. Yeah. Character is the most important thing. Yeah. You have to have these great characters mm-hmm. who are really, really, really watchable and they fit that story. Yeah. Well, that's the hardest thing to write, I think. I think, I think that's the hardest thing is yeah. character. Because even if you, I, I've, I've been working on this script for way too long. Um, <laughs> where the, the main thing is still, I've, I've, I'm not there with the main character. And unless you have that, unless like even even though it's based on an actual real person, that's that doesn't make it easier to translate it. I think into into a film character. But, it, but, but in terms of your character, yeah. even that real person is an interesting motivation for the story. Yeah. Or um, or else they're amazing yeah. and they're perfect. Yeah. So. What what would you say? Are they kind of okay-ish as a character? Do you love if you were to put mm. that person into the film? Yeah, the actual real person would yeah. the film work, and would it be amazing? Yeah, it would. Yeah. So my advice maybe is see what it's like if you yeah. actually don't try and make up too much. Literally put that right. guy into your film, right? And maybe even get that guy in to do some little workshop. Oh no, I can't things. use the real person. You couldn't. It's impossible. No, it's absolutely impossible. In which case, you could probably know what sort of things he would say. Yeah. And just, want to be a she? She. Okay. Yeah. You know what um, she's going to say. Yeah, but I think the the problem is it because I like the idea of her as a uh, as a character, but I think the motivation, um, in terms of what she wants in the story, has to be different to something that actual person would want, which I creates see, an interesting okay. dilemma because I always have to I have to change someone. Which, um, which I think is difficult because then you, you, you're creating someone new and then there's all sorts of other things that suddenly don't fit anymore. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I always have to, I think I have to just create a new character. So that's what I was going to suggest. <laughs> yeah. Maybe she isn't quite the right person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if it's not her, who else is there? Do you know anyone right. who could be? No, no, that's the thing. I, I think this is a fantasy of, um, this perfect 
person there that are perfect for this for this story, um, which doesn't really exist. I think. Well, I don't know. So there's loads of questions that I just haven't answered myself. I think about why, what I actually want from that character to be like. Yeah, I think uh, if you're saying the person it's based on wouldn't want that thing, yeah, suggests that that isn't the right character. Well, yeah, you were probably so, right to say that. Yeah. So, so maybe <laughs> I just think I just think if you've got someone in real life, you can base your character on. Yeah, it's much for for me again as a reluctant writer, it's better mm. to do that mm. than to try and make up someone. Yeah, I remember when I when I just make up characters, I don't do a very good job, and then yeah. when I I'm inspired by a real person, I do a much better job. Right? Yeah, because I'm smiling as I'm in a way right. they're writing the part. Yeah, yeah. Because I've got you know, is that saying character is is destiny or character is story? Yeah, so yeah, that makes so much character, sense. Character. Absolutely, I think that's partly the reason why the fir- the first few short films that I wrote, I essentially wrote myself. The lead part, great, great. because not only because great. I wanted desperately wanted screen time. Obviously, that's got nothing to do with it. And if you're the director, you do very well in your own auditions. But it was because I knew my own voice and I knew what I wanted to do. But that's with that's why it works. Character. Yeah, that, that works well. That feels mm. like a strong piece of work. It's a good film mm. because yeah. it's a great, identifiable, real, funny, three dimensional character. Exactly, because it's already there. Yeah, I don't have to invent something. Yeah. Um, but it comes back to casting again. If you have, uh, like, if, you, but then that must be so hard. If you, if you have someone in mind when you're writing a character and then you have to find someone who's like that, I don't that know. must be incredibly difficult. I think to, the hard thing is because you never script, script, which is, right. which is, which is got three dimensional, fascinating characters. Mm. Mm. No, I, I don't worry about it. But if you've got someone in mind when you're writing, that I think it often produces a much more realistic mm. version. So mm. that's what we want. We want a three-dimensional character. When I've done teaching on on courses and they make short short films, a, a student might come up with the idea of um, a man is 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 locked in a cupboard and he's trying to get out. Mm-hmm. That's the worst sort of film. Where it's all about the situation because in a short <laughs> film it should be the character. Yeah, who's the character? Yeah. But it's a very film school approach. It is a very film school yeah. approach. Yeah, but, I mean that's an extreme. Yeah, isn't it? And yeah. Not understanding character is story. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you think film students of don't don't really get that? Because I don't know if there's enough work in teaching writing. Ah, yes. I think it's you. You can't make a film about learning how to write. Mm. Mm-hmm. And if you can't write, you need to get a writer in. Mm. That's why mm-hmm. I think filmmaking is all about scripts, scripts, mm-hmm. scripts, scripts. Script. Mm-hmm. Do you yeah. think it, it? Do you think it's beneficial for a director to have acting experience? I don't know. They say it helps, but I, I don't. I don't. I don't think so. What do you think? I I honestly don't know either. But I think it. I think it would help to a degree to at least. I don't think you have to have acted. I think you just have to understand wh- what it's like to be an actor to a degree. I think you just you just need to have some empathy. Yeah. But I think if you, because I've worked with some directors who, especially when they're very technically minded, you know that. It they somehow and and again it comes down to maybe that it just wasn't a good a good casting, but when they try and um, construct um, a performance from you know from what they think the actor should be doing rather than allowing the actor to do what they that's were the, hired to do is to bring what their their yeah, idea of the character. That's arguably bad directing. Then, isn't very it? bad directing. Yeah. yeah, 
but that comes from not understanding what a performance is Absolutely. and what acting is about. Yeah. Uh, and also not understanding how casting should really yeah. work. So they cast an actor because they look like the part they had in mind, not because, yeah, you just did a face palm. Yeah, but be surprised, especially in film school, that's what it is. Oh, we need, we need someone who looks like, it's got nothing to do with what they look like. That's the yeah. least important, you know, that's what wigs are for. Um, but yeah, so they, I think, yeah, casting is misunderstood. Writing obviously is, is underrated. If you could make your first film again, what would you change? I don't know. I'm not sure. Cause I have my, my little short film with Kira Knightley and Steve Mangan has got a soft, you know, got a soft spot for it uh-huh. because I was learning on the job and I sort of started to find my voice, the director. So uh-huh. I don't know. I don't know if I'd change anything. Uh, oh yeah. Some of the, the color design, I, I introduced the color blue. I should have kept the color blue and keep, kept it all warm tones. Uh-huh. That was a mistake. <laughs> One of the characters wears a denim jacket. And mm-hmm. there's a painting which has got a blue in it. That mm-hmm. was a mistake. Um, um, um. How do you think um, independent films will be consumed in the near future? Because now it's, it's already changing in terms of how we go and see films. I think it's fair to say that it's harder to to go and see independent films in actual cinemas unless you part of that circle and part of that scene, but to a broad audience, how do you think it'll, it'll be consumed? Why is it harder in this cinema? Because I don't know. It's I think mainly it, bigger blockbuster yeah. films. I see. Yeah. I guess it will be video on demand, won't it? Yeah. And, um, and Netflix, um, but particularly I suppose video on demand mm. or people aren't really buying Blu-rays now. So they're downloading. Mm. I guess it's that, mm. isn't it? Mm. Do you think that's a positive development? I think it is. Yeah. Um, there was a film I read the review of, I know the filmmaker, and I was getting excited about seeing it. And in the past, I'd wonder, will it, will it get a release here? But now you just know you will be able to get to see it because right. you'll be able to download it. Right. So it's incredible. It's an amazing yeah. thing. The only thing I don't like is there is this culture now of people watching films on their phones, and that's not yeah. a good thing. Yeah. It's, lots of films really, really, really work so well in the cinema. Yeah. And then if you've got a good projector then that's all right yeah or you sit close to your tv i i I completely agree and i see i see it but i i've got this it used to annoy me as well when i see people on the tube watching a film i think why you're not going to appreciate this so but then i think people that watch a film on a on a screen on a phone probably wouldn't have appreciated it in the cinema (laughs) more you know i mean because it's clearly not you know (laughs) so much lost there already but um no, I think I think it's a great development now uh, in terms of Netflix and, and online platforms to to reach a global audience and it to is, reach it? and it's it it makes it a lot easier for an audience to find your work rather than you having to find your audience if that makes sense. Yeah. Because now it's on there and and people will gravitate towards what they like. Although you, they do need to be made aware of it. So of course, if you're on a good yeah. platform like Netflix, then mm. you're right. Absolutely. Very good company. But it makes it easier to be discovered rather than yes, if it it's does. just released in a cinema in certain territories, yeah. then. Yeah. Yeah. Because you were relying on the reviews in the paper and then you were mm. relying on the Blu-ray DVD release mm. for mm. people to see it. Or if it got sold to TV, you were relying yeah. on that. Yeah. But to make sales is different now, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. And iTunes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's, I think it, it's, uh, it's a great development for, for uh, and you see it with, with uh, box sets and series as something that have completely changed um, with, with Netflix and people binge watching series rather than waiting a week for the next episode. It's now become, they, they completely get engulfed in a world uh, which you couldn't really do before. It's I fascinating. What I, what I find fascinating about the box set thing is um, when I was a kid, I, well, 
when I was at film school, I wouldn't think twice about watching a three-hour, four-hour film. Yeah. Friends of mine would think, well, that's so boring watching a four-hour <laughs> film. But I, <laughs> yeah. I, I wouldn't see it as boring. Yeah. You know, watching a Russian film, which goes on for several hours, <laughs> or a German film. Um, and now people are watching six hours, eight hours of a story. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's so it's so fascinating. But it's because it's the characters, characters are so engaging. It's something you can't really do in, in films, or especially in mainstream films. Um, I think now box sets are where people get engaged in characters and in stories more. Theoretically, you had that in movies. You had, but it's, it, I mean, uh, big blockbusters or the big franchises don't really oh, do that. It's, it's a spectacle now. Big, big to get people in the seats, you have to, you know, everything has to blow up every 15 seconds. Or they, I'm generalizing, I'm exaggerating, but I think now people get excited about characters and stories more in, 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 uh, in the box set format and actually, you know, watching 10 hours, binging 10 hours on um, Game of Thrones or, or things like that, which I think films just don't really allow that anymore. What do you prefer, given the choice of all movies disappear or all box set series disappear? Which oh, would you... God, no. Which it's would impossible you go for? Sophie's choice. I can't know. Of course not. <laughs> is it that hard? Yeah, it is, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I couldn't... I couldn't for me, choose. it's a no-brainer. Really? I stick with the movies. Yeah. Why? Because those are the things that have fulfilled me, given me such joy. Yeah. And no box set has achieved the same right. joy. They've been some yeah. great ones, but not haven't touched movies. Huh. For you, what's the answer? I'm uh, um, What do I have to choose? Yeah, Why do yeah. I have to choose? Because it's the it's it's not, choice. I, I, uh, God, I think I'm going to go with the box set. <sighs> You know why? Because, I'll tell you why. Because I, no, I, I love and adore movies. Of course I do. But you can achieve. That's the great thing with a, with a, a, with a series. There's, there's almost no end to what you can do with it. And there's, there's certain series that's done it really well with like special episodes or like Christmas specials where it is like a film. You know, they set it's a 90 minute format, uh, or you have like a two part special where, you know, something happens. And because you already know the characters, there's almost so much more you can do with it. I think what a great pilot episode is to me a, a beautiful piece of art when it's done well. Um, there's, I think it's, it's such a rich format to explore characters and to explore stories and to, to not have to constantly resolve everything after 90 minutes. I think there's there's a lot of depth in there. And of course what's missing is, you know, is a loads loads of other things you can't do in, in box sets which you can do in films. But um I don't know, I think I, I find it a very exciting format and it's just coming to its own. But if, if you made me choose and that's that's, yeah, that's wow, unfortunately. that's unfortunately. That's controversial. Mm. Uh, see, I, I've only watched a few box sets. The last one I watched was This Is Us, which was on Channel Four. I uh -huh. watched that. Uh -huh. And it seems to me, in terms of storytelling, it's just um, a layer of onion, another mm -hmm. layer of onion uh -huh. each each week. And that's nice. And it's almost novelistic. It's like yeah. chapters, like a kind of modern novel. Yeah. But what I'm missing is that through line. Well, I mean, if you think of Breaking Bad, it's a classic example. Have you seen Breaking no, Bad? I haven't. Which I, I urge you to watch no. it. It's one of those things which you could tell that story in a film. You could. And it'd be a great film. But because it unfolded over hours and hours, you not only get into the head of the main character so deeply that you essentially the the whole thing about that you're following and you're empathizing and you're rooting for a villain, which you don't know he's a villain at first. He's the he's the protagonist. He's a classic protagonist. He turns into an antagonist 
through hours and hours and you have no choice. You're rooting for a man who does unspeakable things, which I think it'd be really hard to do that in 90 minutes mm. or even two hours. Um, and then also on top of that, you get all of the other characters in that world and you really understand that world. And now there's a spin-off series of, of one almost minor character now who's got its own whole world and series. Uh, it's such an amazing world that's created. And it's shot beautifully. It's directed amazingly. The, the, because it's a team of writers, obviously there's a head writer, um, or a showrunner. It, it, it's, it's, it's incredibly dense and it's, it's so rich. Um, and it's a completely different format to, 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 to a film, but I think it's, I personally think it's richer, but it's, it's, it's fairly new, that kind of style. And, um, I, I really like it. I really do. Because I think it, there's so much potential there, especially for actors as well, to really, really explore a character. And there's yeah, a danger because yeah. you get typecast if you do the same character for years. That's what people will remember you for. So there's a danger there, I think. But there's so much potential, so much you can do. Hmm. But I wouldn't want movies to go away. Of course I wouldn't. But if you made me choose, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a new and exciting format. That's That'd be terrible if it disappeared. Sure. Yeah. It was only a game. Well, yeah, I, I take these things very seriously. <laughs> I, I do believe I have those powers. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. And, and good luck with, with your next project. Thank you. Good luck with you finding the right person for your film when you're writing thank you, yeah. in terms of getting... I think I'll just have to meet new people. Yes, meet new people, introduce <laughs> some people. <laughs> Great. Thanks thank so you very much for being on the show. Thank you.